Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Daily Gospel Exegesis Podcast. So as always, we want to do a uh, take a look at the Gospel reading from today's Mass. We really want to get at the literal sense of the text. What was the original author trying to get at when they used certain words? So today we're looking at quite a beloved text. So it's John chapter 2 verses 1 to 11 which is the wedding at Cana. Now, it's actually only read once every three years. So it's read today on the second Sunday in ordinary time, only in year C. So as popular as this reading is, it's actually not read all that often in the liturgical cycle. So let's have a look at the text. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited. When they ran out of wine, since the wine provided for the wedding was all finished, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said, Woman, why turn to me? My hour has not come yet. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. There were six stone water jars standing there, meant for the ablutions that are customary among the Jews. Each could hold twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Draw some out now, he told them, and take it to the steward. They did this. The The steward tasted the water, and it had turned into wine. Having no idea where it came from, only the servants who had drawn the water knew, The steward called the bridegroom and said, People generally serve the best wine first and keep the cheaper sort till the guests have had plenty to drink. But you have kept the best wine till now. This was the first of the signs given by Jesus. It was given at Cana in Galilee. He let his glory be seen and his disciples believed in him. So, the wedding at Cana is our text for today, and it's a very, very rich text. It looks like John is making multiple points. He's not only telling us a historical narrative, he's trying to make a lot of spiritual points. And so, there's a whole lot of stuff he could say, probably about every single line of this text today. And in in a way, we're not going to, going to be able to do that justice. But we really want to look at what a lot of Catholic scholars have pointed out about this text to help you get at the literal sense. So, what's the context? So, in John chapter 1, Jesus has called his first disciples, but this it looks like this is before he begins his official public ministry. So, it appears that this is before he uh, has gone out into the desert to be tempted, and it's before he started going around preaching the kingdom. Verse 1, on the third day. Now, our lectionary reading doesn't actually have this line, but it's important. So, on the third day. So, this follows on from what's been happening in chapter 1. So, in chapter 1, if you read the entire chapter, John tells us about four consecutive days. And now John says, on the third day. So, it looks like what he's telling us is there's four days, and then there's an additional three days. So, apparently, that would make this the seventh day. And there's probably an important point John wants us to notice about that. It's actually the seventh day of Jesus' opening week of ministry. So, this might be trying to imply that the creation fashioned in seven days originally is now being transformed by Jesus. So, there might be hints of a new creation here. Some others think the third day, when John calls this the third day rather than the seventh day, 
It's designed to refer to one particular event in the Old Testament, which is the giving of the law on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. So you might not notice this on a surface reading of the text, but a lot of scholars think that John is deliberately weaving references to the giving of the law into this particular story. So in Exodus chapter 19 on Mount Sinai, after giving the covenant and the people of Israel agree to the covenant, God comes down the mountain on the third day. It actually says that in the text. He comes down the mountain on the third day. And the text goes on to say that God reveals his glory. Well, as we'll see in this text, on the third day, Jesus reveals his own glory. So John might be trying to give us a subtle hint here that Jesus is God by kind of making this um, connection with the Exodus chapter 19 story and using similar language. Interestingly, some later Jewish traditions did see this Sinai covenant story where God comes down the mountain. They saw that as kind of a wedding feast. So uh, that would line up fairly well with what John is doing here. By the way, when we're talking about these uh, additional spiritual meanings here, which are probably implied by the the author, um, part of the literal sense is looking at everything that was implied by the author, and that seems to include here references to Exodus 19. By doing that, we're not saying this is not a historical narrative. Clearly, John is telling us about something that Jesus really did and said. Otherwise, it doesn't have much meaning at all. Uh, But John, interestingly, is able to see deeper meaning in these actual things that happened. And that's what he wants to draw out to his readers. So John now tells us there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, the location of this is disputed. Where actually is Cana? One theory is that Cana is five miles uh, from from Nazareth. But others think it might be a different town that is known as Kerbet Cana. And that would be nine miles north of Nazareth. So either way, the two possible locations are fairly close to Nazareth. And that would explain why Mary and her family are invited, because they obviously know them personally. And you can go there today. They think they've found the site of the original Cana. And there's actually a, um, there's kind of a, a church they've built there where you can have wedding ceremonies. So a lot of people get married in Cana uh, as a reference to this story. And, they, and you can have quite special weddings there at this church in Cana. Now, weddings in that culture could be celebrated for an entire week or more. Now, in this case, the couple is not identified. Interestingly, we never get the names of the couple, although apparently they know Mary somehow. Why does John not tell us who the couple is? Well, because he wants to focus on Mary and Jesus. Those are the most important characters in this story. So here, as he does in other places, John retains the earthly dimension of the event, but he also shows how it reveals a divine mystery. John says the mother of Jesus was there. Now, think think about if you're one of John's uh, first readers. It will be highly significant now that John mentions the mother of Jesus because Mary was a key figure in the early church. And, he, and John knows that when he tells stories about Mary, the original readers would want to know everything they can about Mary. Mary is never named in this gospel, though. She's just called the mother of Jesus. So she appears here at the wedding of Cana, and then she appears again later at the foot of the cross. But in neither case is she named. She's just called the mother of Jesus. Some scholars think that's deliberate. John may be calling her the mother of Jesus in, in it as a general label in order to evoke feminine language, because in the Old Testament, faithful Israel is described in feminine language. So maybe Mary here is being depicted as the embodiment 
in a single person of the faithful people of God. She is a model of what it means to be a faithful Israelite. And certainly in the book of Revelation, which is also written by John, there's an image there of the woman, uh, the woman in the clouds, clothed with the sun and the moon. Clearly, that's meant to be faithful Israel and Mary at the same time. So it seems that John is using consistent metaphors here. Verse 2, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited. So notice the order here. Mary is the primary person who is invited. Apparently, she's the one that knows the, the bride and the groom. Maybe they're relatives of hers. And then by extension, Jesus and his disciples get invited too, because they're connected with Mary. Now, at this stage, Jesus' disciples would only be a few men. Jesus is not yet popular. So it's probably just the few people that he's already spoken to in chapter one. So people like Peter and Andrew, uh, possibly Nathaniel as well. We later learn that Jesus' other relatives are there too. So there's other members of Jesus' family that are at this wedding as well. Now, the fact that Jesus is present at this wedding is a key sign, according to the church's teaching, this is a key sign that Jesus sanctifies the covenant of marriage. So Jesus' presence at a wedding here shows that he approves of weddings, and by what he's about to do at the wedding, he kind of elevates it to a supernatural status, as we'll see. Verse 3, when they ran out of wine, since the wine provided for the wedding was all finished, another translation there is a lot simpler, it just says, when the wine failed. Now, those who are hosting the wedding are required to provide enough wine for all of the guests. And if you did run out of wine, that's actually a great embarrassment to the people running the wedding. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, there's a few things to notice about this. The fact that Mary is concerned about this, again, it probably shows that she's related to the couple. She's actually concerned that they've run out of wine. She doesn't want them to be embarrassed. Maybe that shows that they are her relatives. So, notice what she says to Jesus here. They have no wine. So, she's expecting Jesus to do something about this. By telling him, she thinks that he is able to fix the problem. Remember that by now, Mary knows that Jesus is the Messiah. The angel Gabriel was very clear on that. When when the angel appeared to Mary, the angel said he'll be the Messiah. That was basically uh, what he said to Mary. So she knows that he's the Messiah and she knows that he has God's favor. She may not fully understand Jesus' full identity uh, in terms of him being the son of God or God himself. That is possibly not something that Mary grasps, but she does know that he has special favor from God. So she comes to him and says they have no wine. So she believes, basically, that Jesus can work miracles. Verse 4, Jesus said, woman. Now, this particular phrase has generated a lot of discussion over the years. The first thing to say is to call someone woman in that culture, it's not actually an insult. In our culture, it sort of is. But in that culture, it's equivalent to like madam. So when Jesus or anyone else in the Gospels calls a woman, woman, it just means madam. In fact, Jesus uh, says this to women repeatedly, in, even in the Gospel of John. In chapter 4, he calls a female woman. He does it in chapter 8, and then again in chapter 20. So it's not just Mary that Jesus does this to. It was apparently a fairly common way of addressing women in that culture. Now, having said that, some scholars do think it's a bit odd that Jesus calls his mother woman because even if it's true that in that culture you would call females woman, you would never call your own mother woman. 
So from this, a lot of scholars think it's significant that Jesus does call his mother woman here. And maybe there's a theological connection with uh, Eve in the Garden of Eden. Perhaps Mary here is being depicted as the new Eve. And that's certainly possible. I'm personally not convinced by that. Uh, I think it's it's possible that, um, as in other places, John may have reworded things slightly in order to present this story to his readers. So it's possible that in the original scene, Jesus didn't actually use the word woman. Uh, it's just that John here is using the generic word that was often used to address women in that culture. But some scholars do think that it's highly significant that Jesus chooses to use the word woman. And then he says this, which is possibly even more controversial. He says to his mother, why turn to me? Another translation here is, what have you to do with me? Now, literally in the Greek, what it actually says here is, what to me and to you? So that's the Greek, what to me and to you. This expression might seem particularly abrupt, but there's more that needs to be said about this. So this Greek phrase, what to me and to you, was actually fairly well known as a Semitic phrase in that time period. And basically, it's used in other places in the Old Testament as well. It typically conveys some sort of disagreement between parties or divergence of view. So when Jesus here says to his mother, what to me and to you, it does imply that he is, in a sense, disagreeing with his mother. So some examples of where this is used. So Judges chapter 11 has this phrase, what to me and to you. It's in 1 Kings 17, and it's in Mark chapter 5, verse 7. So that Mark reference, that's when Jesus is casting out a demon, and the demon says to Jesus, what do you have to do with me, Jesus? So it's actually the same basic Greek construction, what to you and to me. So it does imply some sort of disagreement, but not always. So an example where it doesn't is in 2 Chronicles 35. So I think as a starting point here, we want to say that in a sense, yes, Jesus and his mother are disagreeing, at least on face value. When Jesus first hears this proposal from his mother, there's a disagreement. He says, what is that to me and to you? So it probably means, if we're going to translate this into modern day English, Jesus here probably means something like, that is not my problem. That's possibly what he's getting at here, that mother, that is not my problem. Because he actually thinks it isn't his problem, as we'll see. Now, when this phrase is used in the Old Testament, so what to me and to you, sometimes the speaker eventually capitulates to the request. So 2 Kings chapter 3 is an example where the speaker changes his mind. And then sometimes they don't. Sometimes they continue disagreeing. So it's in 2 Samuel 16. So in a sense, it's kind of what to me and to you is sort of a way of signaling the beginning of a discussion about something they disagree on. But it's not the end of the matter. It's sort of the beginning of the discussion. The strength of the Greek phrase is determined by the context. And the context here shows that when Jesus says what to me and to you... It's not an outright refusal. It's the beginning of the discussion. And certainly it's not a rebuke. Jesus is not rebuking his mother. That's not the way it was used uh, in that particular society. As we'll see that Jesus does actually change his mind once he gets more information. Now we're going to first look at why does Jesus refuse the request initially? Why does Jesus say that is not my problem? He explains it for us. He says, my hour has not come yet. So Jesus' hour is a common theme in the Gospel of John. Basically, Jesus' hour refers to the time when Jesus shows his glory and identity. And particularly, if you read the Gospel of John, that's on the cross is the main place that Jesus shows his glory. 
Now, Jesus knows that he has a mission from the Father. He knows that his hour is coming, and he genuinely believes that his hour has not yet come. He thinks it's not yet time for his public ministry of miracles to begin. That's why he refuses his mother's request. So, we'll say that again. Jesus knows that at some point he is going to preach the kingdom of God and he's going to start doing miracles. But it seems that what he doesn't know is when exactly he's going to do every single miracle. So he knows roughly when his ministry is going to start, perhaps. And he's perhaps envisaging that he's not going to do any miracles until his ministry officially starts. And that uh, his ministry does start when he starts preaching. So Jesus here is actually trying to be faithful to his mission. He knows that when he starts doing these miracles, which is what his mother is asking him to do, it's going to start revealing his glory. And Jesus knows that revealing his glory is very much bound up with his mission. And basically, he needs to be careful about when he starts that mission. So, but what what we can say is that although Jesus does have a public mission and he is going to start doing public miracles... It doesn't exclude the possibility of using God's power for miracles in certain local situations, um, even if they're not public miracles. So, And his mother apparently realizes this. His mother knows that, yes, it's true, your public ministry hasn't started, but there is still room for a private miracle, particularly if it's me asking you to do it. So there is an element here. This is another thing you can bring in. There's an element here of um, Mary, because Mary is the one who asks, Jesus is willing to do the miracle. And uh, obviously that has a lot of theological significance. So keep in mind this miracle, Jesus turning water into wine, it's not really a public miracle in the sense that only a few people know that it's happened. Only Mary knows and only the uh, wine stewards know, the the ones that carry the, the big jars. So in that sense, it's not a public miracle. And so perhaps that explains how Jesus is able or allowed to do this miracle before his uh, mission uh, officially publicly starts. So these are all just some thoughts about why might Jesus refuse the request initially. So this phrase still troubles many Catholics, even with that explanation that I've just given, because it does seem to show that there's something Jesus does not know that he really should know if he's God. So it seems that he should know that he is allowed to do this miracle, and yet he doesn't seem to know that. But let's remind ourselves on what the church's teaching is about Jesus' knowledge. The church's teaching is not that Jesus has perfect knowledge about every single factual matter while he's on earth. The the church's teaching is that Jesus was given perfect knowledge of that which God the Father wanted him to know in order to reveal it for his mission on earth. So basically, Jesus would have perfect knowledge of things like God and the kingdom. But Jesus would not necessarily have had perfect knowledge in advance of every single miracle he was to perform. I think it's fair to say that Jesus doesn't fully consciously know, he can't sort of foresee every single miracle that he's going to do. Um... There's some places, particularly if you think about the Syrophoenician woman, there's other places in the Gospels where it looks like Jesus is not going to do a miracle, and then he changes his mind. So think about the Syrophoenician woman. And that's certainly within Catholic teaching. Jesus doesn't necessarily know in advance every single miracle he's going to do, uh, but he does know other things uh, perfectly, infallibly, for the purpose of the kingdom. So that's something that uh, might help you understand how it can be that Jesus doesn't know that he's going to do this miracle and yet still be God. Now, having said that, there is an alternative reading of this phrase that's worth mentioning. Some scholars think 
this phrase, my hour has not come yet, can actually be translated, has not my hour already come? So that would be the completely opposite translation, because that would be Jesus announcing that his time has come and he's not disputing it. Uh, But that is not the majority understanding. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So Mary knows her son. She recognizes that although he has just said that he's not going to do the miracle, she trusts that he actually will do the miracle. So Mary has some insight on how she thinks it really is going to go down. So she tells the servants to be prepared for whatever instruction he gives them. And in a sense here, this is probably supposed to be a model for all Christians. Mary tells us to be prepared for whatever Jesus tells us to do. So she leads us to Jesus and then tells us to be ready for the instructions he's going to give us. Again, some scholars see a parallel here with the uh, covenant ceremony in the book of Exodus, because in that story, the people, the Israelite people say, we will do everything the Lord has told us. So that's in Exodus 24. What does Mary say here? Do whatever he tells you. So in this sense, Mary both displays and encourages perfect covenant faithfulness to God. She's the model of what it means to be in faithful covenant relationship with God. So notice Mary's kind of approach here. She doesn't demand a miracle from Jesus. When Jesus refuses to do it, she doesn't argue with him. She also doesn't tell Jesus how to fix the problem. She doesn't ask him uh, for a specific sort of miracle. She just leaves the problem with him and trusts that he will solve it. And perhaps we can say that that's how she works in general. She doesn't demand things of Jesus. She just brings requests to him and trusts that he will solve them. On Jesus' part, it looks like Jesus reflects on this for a while. He sort of goes away and thinks about it, perhaps. And then he determines that he will do the miracle for the sake of his mother. So I think it's fair to say in this case, a lot of people struggle with this, but it's fair to say that Jesus wouldn't have initiated the miracle on his own. But when his mother prompts him to do it, he accepts it. And this is why, from a theological perspective, uh, one of the reasons why Mary is necessary. It seems like there are some things that Jesus wouldn't do if not given the prompting of his mother. And so that adds a whole new perspective on um, the intercession of Mary and the importance of Mary in the Catholic prayer life. There are some things that will only happen, uh, that Jesus will only do when he's given a prompting from his mother. Now, we want to be careful with this because obviously things in heaven work differently than they do in this earthly scene, but it looks like um, some of this might be behind uh, the language that John uses here. So here, Mary acts as an intermediary between the couple and, or perhaps the servants, and Jesus. So she's acting as kind of an intermediary between them. St. Thomas Aquinas writes of this story, Mary assumed the role of mediatrix in two ways. First, she intercedes with her son. In the second place, she instructs the servants. So Mary's words here, do whatever he tells you. These are actually her final words in the entire Bible. It's right at the start of Jesus' ministry, but we have no other recorded words of Mary after this point, which is really interesting. Her final testament for all Christian readers is, do whatever he tells you. And many see this phrase as reflective of Mary's general attitude towards Jesus. Remember, uh, when the angel Gabriel appeared, she said, let it be done to me according to your word. And now she says, About Jesus, she says to other people, do whatever he tells you. So whenever people come to Mary, even today, she points them always towards Jesus. That's her 
her role, if you like, to point people towards Jesus. It seems that this is probably one of the points John wants to make his original readers too. Remember that John's original readers would know of Mary, and John wants to make the point that she's always pointing people towards Jesus. That's her role in the church. It's also worth remembering that John, the author, is the person who knew Mary the best, apart from Jesus, because he's the one who lived with her after Jesus went back to heaven. So remember, John took Mary into his own home. So John knows Mary very well. He probably got this particular story from Mary's own recollections. Verse 6, there were six stone water jars standing there. So these are big stone water jars. And they're meant for the ablutions that are customary among the Jews. So it's an interesting translation. Another translation is these were for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, it doesn't tell us which purification ritual these were there for. Uh, Some scholars think they're there for uh, purification from being in contact with the dead. So according to Numbers chapter 19, there are stipulations about what Jews had to do if they come in contact with the dead. They needed to be purified with water on the third day and then again on the seventh. So this language of third day and seventh day might link to what's going on here. Certainly there's some sort of purification water that's present at this feast. And again, there might be links here with the Sinai covenant because at Sinai, the Jews, before they kind of signed the covenant treaty and in order to be in the presence of God, they needed to have ritual purity in order to be near God's presence. So again, maybe John is sort of reminding his readers about purity and God's presence in the person of Jesus. John tells us that each stone jar could hold 20 or 30 gallons. That's a lot. So total, we have over 120 gallons of water. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they fill them to the brim. So they do whatever he tells them to do. They, they listen to Mary's instruction. They trust Mary. Fill the jars with water and they fill them to the brim. Verse 8, Jesus said, draw some out now and take it to the steward. Now, at some point in the process of taking the water to the steward, the water turns into wine. So we often don't realize this, but in the process of them carrying the water to the steward, the chief butler, that's when it transforms into the wine. Jesus doesn't touch the water in this case. He sort of does the miracle from a distance in a sense. Verse 9, they did this, the steward tasted the water and it had turned into wine. So the fact that Jesus turns water into wine is significant in many ways. There's all sorts of things we can say about the fact that he chooses to turn water into wine. Firstly, it shows that Jesus is willing to solve problems that his mother brings to him. So in this sense, Mary really is an advocate and intercessor, even for the saints on earth today. Secondly, it tells us about the goodness of wine. Jesus would not have done the miracle if he believed drinking wine was sinful. So it tells us that Jesus is okay with the idea of drinking wine. Thirdly, there's probably Eucharistic overtones here. John's gospel is the most Eucharistic of all of them, particularly when we get to John chapter 6, he talks about uh, eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. So John's gospel is very sacramental. Uh, The link here with turning water into wine is probably the beginning of the Eucharistic overtones. And fourthly, the whole wedding scene here, and the fact that Jesus is the one that provides the supernatural wine might be an image of the marriage supper of the Lamb that all Christians will experience in heaven, which we again see in Revelation chapter 19. Now, the wine itself might have symbolic significance. So there's quite a few Old Testament texts that speak of 
the future eschatological period, the future kingdom of God, they talk about it in terms of there being an abundant supply of wine. So these Old Testament prophets say that when the kingdom of God comes, there will be great celebrations and great wine. For example, Joel chapter 9 verse 13 says, on that day, the mountains will drip with new wine. So maybe the fact that Jesus turns water into abundant wine, into good wine here, maybe that's meant to be a signal that the kingdom of God has arrived. And possibly John's original readers would have made that connection. So the butler here, the chief steward, has no idea where it came from. Only the servants who had the water, who drew the water knew. The the steward believes all the wine has run out, so he doesn't understand where the wine has come from. The steward called the bridegroom. Now, again, we don't know who the bridegroom was, but he was probably just as surprised as everyone else. Verse 10, the steward says to the bridegroom, people generally serve the best wine first. Another translation is every man serves the good wine first and keep the cheaper sort till the guests have had plenty to drink. Or you can translate that, and when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. So the idea is that by then, after everyone's drunk the good wine first, everyone is slightly intoxicated maybe, and their palates have changed. So uh, people are less likely to notice the poor taste of the cheaper wine. So it's actually a very good hospitality strategy. Give, Give people good wine first, and later on they're less likely to notice the bad quality of the cheaper wine. It's quite a common practice. So, but the butler is genuinely surprised here because he's just tasted this new wine and it's very, very good wine. He says to the, to the bridegroom, you have kept the best wine till now. And again, that might have some theological significance in terms of God's best covenant, the new covenant being kept until now, until Jesus arrives. Verse 11, John says, this was the first of the signs given by Jesus. So signs is a key theme in the Gospel of John, and we're going to talk about this in other episodes of the Gospel of John. There are seven signs in the Gospel of John. Obviously, Jesus does more miracles than this in his ministry, but John chooses to focus on seven key miracles that he's able to call signs. Why these one signs? Well, all of them reveal Jesus' divine identity in a special way. That's what makes them signs. They're kind of like signposts that point people towards Jesus' identity. John's gospel focuses heavily on showing people that Jesus is who he claims to be, and the signs help people help uh, prove that he is who he claims to be. Jesus' first sign here, turning water into wine, models Moses' first sign. What was the very first supernatural thing Moses did? He turned water into blood in Exodus chapter 7. So that's an interesting connection. And John now says it was given at Cana in Galilee. So John reiterates, this was a real event that happened in Cana in Galilee. John now says, he let his glory be seen. Another translation there is, he manifested his identity. So John confirms that this miracle, turning water into wine, disclosed Jesus' divine identity as the Son of God. This is a true sign that shows people his identity. And his disciples believed in him. So the disciples, the ones who are with him at this point, they recognize what the signs are pointing to and they begin to have a commitment to him, even though their faith remains imperfect until the resurrection. So they begin to believe in him as a result of this. So let's quote now from the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture for the Gospel of John. I think this does a really good job summarizing the meaning of this miracle. We can now draw together the different biblical allusions in this account and glimpse the spiritual meaning of this event. 
Through his prophets, the Lord promised a definitive act of salvation by which he would redeem his people from sin and renew the covenant. The new covenant was likened to a marriage between God and his redeemed people. And in this new perfected state of affairs, God would meet and vastly exceed his people's needs, such that no one would want for anything. Hence, the prophets described it as a time of great prosperity, including such things as a superabundance of good, of good wine. In this seemingly simple event at a wedding, John invites us to see a great mystery, God's great end-time act of salvation to fulfill his promises and renew his covenant is being accomplished in his son Jesus. God's covenant marriage with his people on the third day at Sinai is being renewed in the eschatological marriage of the Messiah with his people, personified by his mother on the third day at Cana. The water of the Sinai covenant is not being thrown out, but it is being transposed into the wine of the gospel in the new context of the word made flesh. So that was a quote from the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture. You can see how there's multiple layers to what's going on here. The wine means things. There's covenant references here. Mary represents multiple things. Uh, There's all sorts of stuff going on in this story. And sometimes it's good to read a a variety of biblical scholars who are faithful to the text because often they're able to draw out parallels and possible meanings that are not you, you might not notice the first time you read it. And so I hope you've been able to make some new connections with this story. So we want to go to verse 12 now. Verse 12 is not actually part of the lectionary for today, but verse 12 is never read in the lectionary. So we're going to finish with this verse. Verse 12, after he went down to Capernaum, so that's fairly close to Cana. So Jesus moves from Cana down to Capernaum after the wedding with his mother and his brethren. So his family, Jesus' family comes with him for a few days This is before he begins doing his public acts around the area of Capernaum. Notice that it says his mother and his brethren. So Jesus' other relatives come with him. Who are Jesus' brethren? This is something we talk about in other episodes, uh, particularly if you want to dive into this. Tuesday of week 16 in Ordinary Time, the episode on that day focuses heavily on Jesus' brothers. They're certainly not blood siblings. They might be half-siblings or cousins. So again, we go through this in a bit more detail in other episodes. And John says his mother and his brethren and his disciples stayed in Capernaum for a few days. So they spend a bit of time in Capernaum before what happens next. Now, in the Gospel of John, the very next thing that happens is Jesus cleansing the temple. And you can hear that on the Feast of the Lateran Basilica every year. So let's finish today with some catechism references, and this is quite a deep text, so there's a few different places. Paragraph 2618 from the Catechism of the Catholic Church is about Mary's prayer. The gospel reveals to us how Mary prays and intercedes in faith. At Cana, the mother of Jesus asks her son for the needs of a wedding feast. This is the sign of another feast, that of the wedding of the Lamb, where he gives his body and blood at the request of of the church, his bride. So again, there's all sorts of interesting significance here with the wedding, uh, Mary's own prayer, and Jesus giving his own body and blood is all brought together in that paragraph. The next one is paragraph 1613. This is about the sacrament of marriage. On the threshold of his public life, Jesus performs his first sign at his mother's request during a wedding feast. The church attaches great importance to Jesus' presence at this wedding at Cana. She sees in it the confirmation of the goodness of marriage 
and the proclamation that henceforth marriage will be an efficacious sign of Christ's presence. Paragraph 495 is about Mary's motherhood. Called in the Gospels the mother of Jesus, Mary is acclaimed by Elizabeth at the prompting of the Spirit, and even before the birth of her son, as the mother of my Lord. In fact, the one whom she conceived as man by the Holy Spirit, who truly became her son according to the flesh, was none other than the Father's eternal Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Hence, the Church confesses that Mary is truly Mother of God. The last paragraph we'll look at is 1335, which is in the section about the Eucharist. The miracles of the multiplication of the loaves, when the Lord says the blessing breaks and distributes the loaves through his disciples to feed the multitude, prefigure the superabundance of this unique bread of his Eucharist. The sign of water turned into wine at Cana already announces the hour of Jesus' glorification. It makes manifest the fulfillment of the wedding feast in the Father's kingdom, where the faithful will drink the new wine that has become the blood of Christ. So all sorts of rich uh, theology going on here. I'll include those paragraphs in the episode description if you want to take a closer look at them. Thank you for your support of the ministry. I hope you've learned something new from the wedding at Cana story. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please share it with other people. This small ministry can only grow by you guys, the listeners, telling other people about it. So please keep this ministry in your prayers and we'll see you again tomorrow.